0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to That's So Second Millennium, episode 19, where we're going to continue and hopefully conclude our talk about uh, the Speakers of the Society of Catholic Scientists conference in 2018 that was held at the uh, Catholic University of America back in June. So I'm Paul Geesting, I'm a PhD in geology uh, who possibly reads a little too much for his own good. And uh, I'm joined by Bill Schmidt who is a journalist based in South Bend and uh, is also interested in matters of faith, religion, society, and culture.
1: Right. I may not read too much, but I certainly uh, uh, ask questions to the point where perhaps I ask too many questions, but I know that uh, it's yielding a lot of uh, our discussion is yielding lots of interesting answers and more questions. So uh, with that, let me, uh, let me uh, stop and just let you continue with those uh, uh, discussions of the speakers that you heard.
0: So, well, I think the next uh, speaker because, uh, I mean, I know you, Bill, uh, enjoy uh, Pope Francis. Not that I don't. Um, But uh, the next speaker's name was Carol Lamb. She actually works for NASA. I believe she's based in Colorado. She is, yeah. The uh, Cooperative Institute for Research and Environmental Sciences in Boulder, Colorado. I think. Huh. Well she said she had a NASA affiliation. Well there you go. Um, that will that, that'll, that'll teach me. Um, did I I write that down in my notes? Did I write that down in my notes. I write that down oh, in my notes. No. That is that was you know,
1: just lots of affiliations. Mm-hmm.
0: That was just my memory. Uh, I think she's I mean obviously given what she does, uh, her research is about atmosphere and climate And she has to be plugged into, you know, NASA Earth observing missions for what she does. What she actually studies is the effect of black carbon on the atmosphere. So particulate emissions, um, which is, you know, one of the, one of the many things that sort of is forced to take. In the word of an old book about the planets that I read many years ago, um, they're, they're not only taking a back seat to the discussion about carbon dioxide, but they're riding behind in a completely separate car. So, <laughs> so we, we tend to think about carbon dioxide full stop, and we don't even think about not only other greenhouse gases, but also the effect of other things that we're doing to the Earth's atmosphere, which includes putting out particulate matter, and the effect of particulate matter on the atmosphere is not the same as greenhouse gases. It has a lot. Uh, it has a very different set of uh, effects on the climate. So she talked right. about that quite a bit, um, which was, you know, I mean, in the in the interest of, you know, the conference. There, there's a tension between wanting to have a focused conference on a on a tight piece of subject matter, but also, you know, especially in the early stages of the society, which is clearly what we're in. Um, Just to give people an idea of the breadth of interest, you know, you can can be a scientist in any branch of science and and be very interested in trying to integrate the findings of your science with your understanding of the faith. So, and in her case, of course, her topic, you know, the, the title that she gave for her talk was Integral Ecology as a Restoration of Man's Proper Role in Creation. Which, you know, if you really, and and that's the thing, and to me the beautiful thing, and, you know, and also, you know, obviously a frightening thing in some sense, you know, that you can get very far into the details, and in fact you have to at some point, you know, what is the, you know, the specific contribution of diesel engines on the road in China to how we're taking care of the planet? Yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah. you know, we that, that's the responsibility that we have. Is that is is to you know is is to do the science and do the engineering the best that we can in order to you know preserve the planet and especially for the poor and of course that ties yeah. into you know yeah. as as the as the list the astute listener has no uh, has no doubt already concluded she stopped to talk about uh, Laudato C. Wonderful bit. and an interesting uh, point that she brought out is that Laudato C and Patcham and Terrace uh, which I believe was Paul the Sixth. You would probably know uh-huh. be better than I. Um I, I think I it was so. maybe it was John the twenty third. Maybe it was John the twenty third at my Pius the twelfth. But I think it was about, you know, nuclear war and the arms race and so on.
2: Yeah. Um,
0: but both of those were unusually for an encyclical, you know, and what what's an encyclical, right? It's a it's a letter that's supposed to go the circuit around the different churches. Right. And, and these encyclical letters are explicitly addressed to humanity at large, and not just Christians, let alone not just Catholics in you know um, in communion with the Pope. So so that's you know that that was a, that was a point that she stopped to to comment on that we are you know and and, and you know the, the sense that this is something that. We can collectively, I mean, we should look at it. This is something that, in the context of new evangelization, which or just evangelization, I mean, I am, I guess I personally, you know, to, to be, you know, kind of crotchety uh, Paul off of the corner here, I am wary of the, the possibility, the, the tendency to sort of say, new evangelization, registered trademark, um, as if something... You know, as, as if it's going to be something brand new and a complete break with anything the church has done in the past, and generally that whole you know sort of fake spirit of Vatican II that, you know, everything is different now, we don't have to listen to any of that crap anymore. Um, oh, which hasn't, yeah. you know, it hasn't really gotten the church very far. Um, but, nevertheless, there were excesses in the other direction that we really should rein in and eliminate where necessary. And one of them is the tendency to sort of just go off and do our own thing and only talk to ourselves. And one of the ways that we can really do that is to dedicate ourselves to, you know, seeking out allies, you know, and, and just working together with the people, you know, that we share the world with about Mm -hmm. all of the different issues, you know, and that, that certainly includes war and, you know, refugees and justice, you know, in terms of, well, distributive justice, to use the uh, the classical term, about you know the ability of people to get care when they're sick, um, or when yeah. they're, lost, they're in danger, and also about you know what we're doing, what we have done to the earth's environment, and what effect it's going to have on people, and of course especially people who are having a hard time making making thing making ends meet in uh, a material sense, having trouble you know just doing getting the basics you know human necessities of caring for their families. Um, yeah. So that's, you know, and that, that's a point where, you know, we can and we should because if we, if we work together with people, you know, and they realize that, you know, we do care about the things that human beings care about as opposed to existing off in some separate space where we've convinced ourselves only to care about, you know, whatever, to use the pejorative term, pelvic issues. Um, but, that, but that's all we, that we care about, which is, of course, isn't shouldn't be the case. If that if that were all that we cared about, we'd have a very hollow Christianity indeed.
2: Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So that's you know, that that, that was yeah. a you know, that was the broad takeaway. I certainly as you know, as a geologist was very intrigued to uh, to get into the details of her uh, her talk about the black carbon and soot in the atmosphere and what that does onto the Earth's climate. But
2: that
0: was was the larger, you know, takeaway.
1: Very interesting, yeah. And it's uh, uh, in the spirit of um, Laudato Si and Pope Francis's uh, true uh, holistic thinking, uh, ecology uh, thinking, both uh, scientific ecology and human ecology, uh, it, it, there, there is a lot of things there are a lot of things coming together there so uh, yeah go on go on with some of these uh, other points and speakers
0: yeah so that was um, so the last speaker on uh, Saturday was actually Juan Martín Maldacena and so and he, he's, he's at the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton so oh, those cool. listeners who are of a physics bent would recognize oh right The famous, you know, my understanding is actually not being a physicist, not being as plugged into that as I would like to be, at least at this point. Um, My understanding is that he's very famous as a string theorist, um, but he's also done plenty of work on, you know, relativity. So, I mean, so modern physics really is still kind of going down these separate tracks of relativity, the curvature of space time, uh, black holes, astronomical phenomena. And that, you know, that will bleed us off into sort of cosmology, and then there is a separate track, and there are points of contact between that track and the quantum physics track. Hmm. But it's actually the more I've read into it, even the moderate amount that I've read into it at this point, the tracks only cross in a sort of ad hoc manner. Um, that is, you know, it's it's recognized as kind of. I mean it's you know, crisis is perhaps not the right word but that's that's the state of physics and that's the problem that we're working on you know the, the great big advances in physics in the near to moderate future are going to involve bridging that and coming to you know as it's called a sort of grand unified theory that brings gravity mm-hmm. in hold with the other you know the other three fundamental forces of the universe you know, electromagnetism and then those weird nuclear forces Um, And that somehow brings, you know, relativity and the curvature of space-time into an agreement with, you know, understanding of quantum physics. And if string Mm -hmm. theory is going to be the way that that gets bridged or not, um, it's had had a good long chance uh, for for a, uh, a successful string theory to wrestle its way to the top. And unfortunately, there are still no clear winners Thirty or it's almost getting to be forty years after uh, it was first put forward as possibly the great new thing. So, mm-hmm. yeah. so nevertheless, uh, Juan Martin Malvecino was uh, you know is a very famous physicist, and so he came and talked about his work because uh, again, it would be kind of a disappointment for uh, Malviccino to come and not talk about, especially for the people, the the ample number of physicists in the audience, it would have been very disappointing for him not to talk about his actual work. So he talked really? a lot
2: yeah. about
0: um, about the curvature and the shape of space time, uh black holes and parallels between black holes and the actual the singularity at uh, the Big Bang, whether those could potentially, you know, how how while studying one, you know, there there may be a lot of parallels between the two. And that gets, it gets, that, that got fairly far, you know, if you, if I thought Carol Lamb got out into the details of her research, uh, this definitely, you yeah, know, it definitely got out into the, uh, the details of his research that I would have a very hard time kind of compressing into a, into a nice <laughs> distinct wad to put into this podcast. But it was, it was of course a nice vote of confidence for him to come and talk to this conference and very intriguing to know, you know, to, and, and it was it was you know sobering to realize for me personally I want to get closer to the fringes of what physicists are doing and you know learn more about it and be part of you know if I'm not doing the actual theoretical physicist myself, I want to be in touch with those people and I want to be able to comment on it you know intelligently so yeah it was it was it was sobering in that sense that uh, there's a lot of work to do to get there but it's also really yeah. exciting.
2: Yeah, really. Really.
0: Um, so the so Sunday and it was a beautiful thing again as as I probably commented several uh podcasts ago, it's a beautiful thing to go to a scientific conference where there was explicitly time set aside to go to mass. That yeah. was really nice. <laughs> so yeah. after Mass on Sunday morning, we had breakfast because we were orthodox enough to uh, deliberately schedule eating, you know, after communion. So that was that was great. And uh, after that we had we had a uh, a scholar named Michael Denon, Michael Denon. Works. Let me uh my handy dandy copy of the program here. Michael Denon is a OK. So he's at UC Irvine and he is. Wow. He's a vice provost out of UC Irvine. Wow. He doesn't get to do much research <laughs> anymore. I bet. Uh, so he's <laughs> in physics and astronomy at, at UC Irvine. So his talk was actually dedicated kind of to. Uh, um, <laughs> evaluating and deconstructing somewhat like, uh, Aaron Sherger deconstructed this, you know, this myth about this particular set of experiments, you know, in neuroscience, quote, proving that there is no such thing as free will, unquote. Um mm-hmm. Denon actually uh, was, uh, critiquing a book by someone named Sean Carroll, who is apparently also a physicist. It, uh, you know, he, he, he's one of those people who exists in that range of names I recognize, but I'm not sure why I recognize him. But, uh, mm-hmm. but he's a physicist and he's a, he's a quantum physicist. So, as Denon describes it, he, he has a book called The Big Picture. Sean Carroll does. And so he talks mm-hmm. about, quote, poetic naturalism, unquote. And so, in that sense, poetic, Denon put it, the stories we tell ourselves about stuff at higher levels of complexity. That's not quite a quote, but it's pretty close. Um, so mm. everything that we called in earlier podcasts emergent. So, yeah. you know, the, the laws of well, uh, evolution <laughs> would be an emergent behavior. Uh, the laws governing Wadati Benioff zones where Tectonic plates are subducting into the Earth's mantle, and you see a plane of earthquake, you know, locations descending into into the Earth, and they connect up to ocean trenches. That's an emergent behavior, because it depends on, you know, the properties of rocks, and the properties of rocks depend on the properties of minerals, and the properties of minerals depend on the properties of atoms, and the properties of atoms depend on the properties of subatomic particles. But there's also these emergent rules that come together at these higher levels of complexity. You would have a hard darn time working out that planets would behave in X fashion just by looking at the quantum physics of how subatomic particles relate. Uh, Which that's that's kind of Carroll's point, you know, his his argument, as Denon put it, is that naturalism, quote, is quantum physics. And that's actually reality and everything else we tell ourselves at a higher level is actually is just a nice story, which in the context of the conference and the topic means that, you know, our brains and our thoughts and whatever consciousness is are just emergent behaviors. And those are just nice stories. And what's really going yeah. on is just that there's quantum physics going on. And, you know, that's that's all there is. Yeah. And so. And so that's so that's I mean. That is by itself not necessarily, you know, if, if you allow yourself the qualification, and yes, at quantum, at the level of quantum physics, there is also what we've been talking about, and there is uncertainty, and there are probabilities, and there is room below the level of the Heisenberg uncertainty principle for non-physical things to affect the physical, uh, that's not necessarily completely, uh, that's that's not necessarily inconsistent with you know being Christian or theism in general either. Right. However, it's probably there are there are weaknesses to that presentation anyway, which Denon made in the context of four points. So these emer- the, his first point is that actually these emergent principles don't necessarily just follow from the quantum physics, and in particular. Thermodynamics, which is the property of you know aggregates of particles, you know, large enough to at least put in a test tube and you know spot with your naked eye. Um, right. The law, the laws of entropy. I mean, this is a discussion that's been going on for at least a century and a half. You know, entropy and and interpreting interpreting entropy and the you know the desire quote desire of the universe to continue basically increasing in disorder in some sense that you can quantify by this measure of entropy. Mm-hmm. That okay. Does that or does that not follow from just kind of considering the statistics of lots of particles interacting, Statistical <laughs> mechanics, it's called. Are you okay, Bill? Yes. Okay. That's, that sounded like you poked yourself in the <laughs> No, nope, that's
2: uh, fine
0: which a lot of people, I mean, you know, my students have definitely done when I brought up thermodynamics. So it was, it was, it was a, uh, a response, I suppose, I was uh, practically ready for. Uh, thermodynamics is one of those <laughs> legendarily hard things that uh, I have to, I had to get across when I was teaching uh, petrology because that uh, the chemistry of rocks depends very, very clearly on the laws of thermodynamics. And, you know, you talk about how minerals change from one mineral to another at different pressures and temperatures, and their eyes start glazing over. But in any case, so that was so that was Denon's point is that entropy in particular is a is a leading example of an emergent reality that is not maybe very, very possibly not just reducible to the laws of quantum physics. And that that's mm-hmm. sort of an aspect of unification that people, including my master's thesis advisor, to make it sort of personal way back in the yeah. day. Uh, she has written some papers where she's convinced that and so you know the delightful audacity of, of Anne Hoffmeister, she's a mineralogist who's written papers about cosmology.
2: That takes mm-hmm.
0: um and she's gotten the mumblers no. in certain places. Um uh, but sh- but she's you know she's made the point that you know the cosmology that we have of the Big Bang may not take the laws of thermodynamics and, you know, entropy in particular, the second law. Into account properly, and that we and the Big Bang may not look like what we think it looks like if you actually, you know, sit down and put that in there properly. Um, hmm. You know, so and and his, his claim doesn't stand or fall, you know, by just entropy. Of course, there's lots of other things that we could go into um, in the context of a half an hour talk. He did not. Um, so then there's the question of, you know, <laughs> then there's the epistemological question of what's physical reality. Um, how do we know what it is? You know, <laughs> that's a lot of philosophy. Sure. You know, unfortunately, you know, the new atheism embodies a lot of you know sort of contemporary scientific thought that just sickeningly cavalierly dismisses philosophy altogether. And while yeah. I would be the first one to say, yeah, there's been a lot of terrible philosophy done in the last several centuries. Um, mm. That's not an excuse to dismiss it all. Really, right? Used to dismiss it all. Um, what is physical reality? Is it just our sense data? You know. Then it, are, are you? Are we going to interpret that in an idealistic or realistic fashion? Or are you going to actually tangle with the philosophical issues there? Um, what's reality? Is it? Is it the particles that we theorize? Um, so, and and if you're going to say that, let me let me get out of the way while uh, you get bull rushed by Karl Popper and uh every other philosopher of science in the last hundred years uh, saying, you know, that's probably not uh, that that's that's pretty easy to demolish. Um but those are those are our theories. That's not you know deserving of well that's that that's the reality that we can use as our foundation. We have to go get that reality from somewhere. Right. Um so that's you know, and then that that leads us into: uh, Are there non-physical realities? What about these laws of mathematics, like we were talking about in Kellner's talk? Um, are yeah, there? That's right. Is yeah. is what Guttle's actually proving that there are simply mathematical truths that transcend our finite understanding? Um, that and whatever they would be, they wouldn't be physical. Right. Um. And are there are there and of course that brings us then to the question of are there non-physical you know, and I you'd have to put this in quotation marks, forces, are there non-physical effects, you know, of non-physical things on physical objects, which again, of course, we would have to have if we're going to accept the, the existence of a soul and any other, you know, sort of miraculous happening, which will bring us to the next talk. Um mm-hmm but of course, and of course, you know, in ruminating on his talk just the other day when I was writing to you to get ready for this episode, Mm -hmm. um, you know, don't non-physical realities have to affect physical reality. Don't we already know that they have to, because don't mathematics and logic already constrain reality? And those are not, those aren't physical. Okay. So, so that, you know, and that, (laughs) That always makes it easier, at least in a uh, rhetorical sense, to believe, well, and then other non-physical things can affect reality. Right. So that, you know, then that brings us to the question of free will and that, you know, and once again, the Arthur Compton observation that you know quantum physics leaves all the room in the world. We cannot prove. We can't go below the Heisenberg uncertainty limit. We can't prove that something is not going on down there, is affecting our bodies. And then Denon actually wound up with talking a little bit about miracles. At the outset of the talk, he led off with an exercise and took a very uh, unscientific poll about what we thought a miracle was, what, what, what would be yeah. the critical elements for a miracle. And then at the end, he uh, kind of chastised us <laughs> and, and, and went on a vigorous campaign To say that miracles are actually not violations of physical law—that we shouldn't have that in our idea of what a miracle is—that there's, you know, we should put our focus on what God's will and purpose are. um, But you know, the logical consequences of what he was talking about would sort of have to lead us to accept, I think, that you know, miracles are really in every circumstance would, would seem to be his argument. They're simply really unlikely and they, they come about at significant points, but they're never actually breaking the laws of physics, which in its way in a way is a very satisfying thing, because mm-hmm. why did God put these you know, the being itself wrote these rules, you'd probably think it likes them. <laughs> right? And it may be reluctant to just break them all the time, um, because we don't live in. And this, you know, to get us back to a somewhat more serious philosophical point, we don't live in a voluntaristic universe. You know, that's one of the terrible things. And I have to be careful. I have heard that a going, you know, sort of Islamic theological understanding is that, is 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 to that you know that everything is God's will and that it's simply God's will, and that it's somehow constraining God in an unacceptable way for reality to follow rules. And that what it yeah. really is, is that God wills at every single moment um, for things to change to whatever their new position, time, energy, momentum, etc., etc., etc. is. Um, and that it's not because there are laws of physics that you know God has chosen to essentially limit Himself with well, ah that's that's terrible, um and that that was also is also of you know there are a lot I think especially of Protestants but it goes all the way back to the 14th century and you know William of Ockham and the sort of I think of it I mean I I think it's it's more called nominalism but it's really a kind of voluntarism you know that every everything is God's will everything is just God's will. And God's will is arbitrary, and it's somehow a restraint on God's freedom to say that He's He's a, He's choosing to obey rules. Which, right? The more I think about it, the more dangerous and nasty um, that philosophical position seems to me to be. Um, I think there's a lot of terrible, terrible, logical and also emotional and rhetorical, so to speak, consequences. From adhering to that viewpoint, which was definitely not—I mean, certainly not Aquinas' viewpoint. I don't even think it's really Dun Scotus's viewpoint, although he sometimes gets tarred. He sometimes gets with that brush. Huh. Um, but that's—you know—that's—that's that's really, you know. So the idea, for example, that God could make anything good or bad—it's just—it's just if God said that rape was good, rape would be good. But that's yeah. all there is to it. That there's no internal logic to it. Right. That we're, that we're somehow, in fact, violating God's freedom by putting some in, you know, claiming that there's some internal logic to it. I think that's insane. Um, yeah. And that's yeah. actually, you know, in the context of a discussion that I heard between Bishop Barron, you know, and uh, what's his name? William Lane Craig, who's a, who's a famous Protestant philosopher, apologist at this point, at this point in time, has quite a following. And that there was this dispute that I was really kind of wishing, as I was listening to the the audio of, of this debate, I was really kind of wishing Baron would, you know, take one arm from out from behind his back and you know, sort of put his dukes up and say, no, this is really this is pretty terrible, because uh-huh. you know, Craig would argue against in this case the simplicity of God and how is that relevant here? Simplicity, the divine simplicity implies that God's will and God's intellect aren't separable, that they are co, you know, know, that they coexist in perfect harmony, because in fact, they're basically, they are the same thing. They are God, and God is entirely simple. And And truth is one. Do what?
1: Truth is one. Uh, There's a unity to truth. Truth is what? Uh, uh, truth is one, or uh, there's, there's right. one truth that uh, yeah that brings right, things together right. and separates things. Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah, and and that's a scandal if you're a well, I mean if you're and again to qualify it, you know what I have sometimes read to be the sort of common Islamic position, or for that matter, in this in this case, actually having heard people make cases like this on, as as being their own belief or this, the what's tempting to be a protestant position where you're dealing with the whole question of sola scriptura well you know that's going to be my my one and almost only point of departure and therefore yeah. if if your doctrine of divine simplicity somehow means that you know I can't interpret god being angry as god actually being angry which would be a, a gross oversimplification and i think misinterpretation <laughs> of that doctrine um
2: mm-hmm.
0: well i I'm, I'm just not going to accept it because it doesn't sound right um
2: yeah.
0: yeah you know that's and so what happens is is that it's it's been very tempting um in the philosophical environment of the entire west and west in this sense including islam um in the last 1000 years you know this is you know this again being something i would propose we leave in the second millennium um to have this right. you know sort of voluntaristic yeah. And you know interpretation and to, and to believe that the most important thing is to say that God is free to do whatever god quote unquote wants with the sinister and really i think practically satanic implication that God is going to want to do awful things like define evil as good and good as evil
2: yeah I mean,
0: this is that's i I think that really leads you in terrible directions.
2: Um, yeah. yeah.
0: It's you know, and it's, so it's so it's probably first of all false, and second of all, not <laughs> not conducive to evangelization <laughs> because well, we, right. Yeah. Places, and if you don't need to go those terrible places in any way, shape, or form, let's just not. Really, let's right. not. So anyway, all right. So that you know, so this is you know, this, uh, the subject of the so the subject there. And so, so the next talk was by Craig Lent, who's a professor at Notre Dame, who I would love to come up and talk to at some point. Uh-huh. Um, so he, um, he gave a talk, and, there was, it, was, and it was also you know, interfacing. You know, at, at this point, we're, we're getting into talks that are now interfacing with multiple of the previous talks. Um, so he actually seemed to present a definition of the wave function. I mean, he used the same symbol for it. He called it the state vector. Um, I don't see how it could be anything other than the wave function. And while Stephen Barr in his talk talked about well, the wave function encodes the information that a given observer has, um, Lent said, well, the wave function has all the information that is possible to have about this system. So that's that's a point that at some point I will need to to run down and satisfy myself about you know which of which hmm. of those it is. But he is. Hmm. Um, he addressed the measurement problem as well, which was which was the subject of all talk. talk. Um, and then he went on basically to summarize what Skorani was talking about, that we have the Bell inequality, we have the experiments, we've plugged more and more loopholes in the Bell inequality experiments, and the universe is not deterministic. Well, all right. So then he, then he goes on to address himself to the question of, you know, the, his, the title of his talk was The Freedom of the Physical World, Are You a Machine?, So he goes and he goes in a very Arthur Compton direction once he's sort of laid the groundwork here um, and addresses the objection to basically Compton's position. Okay, well, you know, quantum effects are important for atoms, but at the level of larger things and neurotransmitters have enough atoms to be a larger thing. Um, it's really deterministic and uh, we, 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 the laws of chemistry, you know, the laws of neurochemistry are deterministic and we don't need to worry about quantum physics effects and we're really just, and we're really just deterministic. And Len's like, no. <laughs> you can actually do experiments on things that have 10,000 AMUs, so the weight of 10,000 hydrogen atoms, which is in the range of neurotransmitters. And you mm-hmm. still see quantum effects even all the way up to that scale which to me was a beautiful little case of make a proposal, you know, this is science. Make a claim, check the claim,
2: (laughs) see what actually
0: happened. Um, So far as we know, at the level of contemporary experimental evidence from what Lent was presenting, we are still, you know, Arthur Compton is still right. We are not deterministic. If there isn't a soul, if there isn't a non-spiritual reality affecting us, there is nevertheless randomness. There is at the very least probability. We're not, whatever we are, deterministic. (laughs) That does not, again, with the caveat that if you want to lose your mind and go in the many worlds direction, in that sense I suppose you can be deterministic. But if we're going to, if we live in one universe, it is a probabilistic non-deterministic universe. And that includes our behavior. Right. That was, that was the burden of, of, of Lent's talk. And he was, it seemed, and it, it was another one that I, you know, I listened to and I admired and I was like, that was pretty tight. That was pretty tight. Um, yeah. Yeah. So the, so the final talk I had great hopes for, and was a little disappointed um, partly because I think I was inevitably going to be disappointed. So The final talk was actually by a priest who is also a university professor. Uh, So he was Padre Javier Sanchez Cañazaras. And he is at the University of Navarra. So I believe that's in northeast Spain. And Mm -hmm. uh, he, he talked about decoherence. The title of his talk was Mind First, Why the Decoherence Program Entails the Copenhagen Interpretation. So decoherence had been mentioned earlier, so it's this idea, and, and this is more my, unfortunately, this is more my doing research after the fact than what I was able to understand at the time of the talk. Mm.
2: Decoherence
0: is an, it's not quite an attempt to answer this problem, but it comes up when you're attempting to answer this problem. So you have that question that, was, that we posed at the end of Barr's talk. If we wait for wave functions to collapse until somebody observes them, But who's been around to observe them until what? Adam? Mm -hmm. Until the first human ancestor reached whatever cognitive level to qualify as a quantum mechanical observer? I mean, there's a lot of stuff to to figure out about that. Um, Decoherence Mm -hmm. involves the at least apparent behavior of quantum systems. If you try to get deeper into the mathematics and go beyond just you know the simple setup of a two-slit experiment like we talked about earlier. If you have a bunch of particles interacting with a given particle, those other particles can kind of take away some of the uncertainty and make the beha- the particle in some sense seem to behave in a more classical manner, even though the whole system is still quantum mechanical and uncertain. The the uncertainty has been, so to speak, partitioned between the particles and partitioned away from your test particle.
1: Wow. Uh That
0: that seems to be a very open question. Uh, That, I think, decoherence has really sort of risen in prominence and and, come into use as a term since the 70s or 80s. So it's still being worked out. Um, And so this talk, I was really hoping this talk could lay out a real clear, obvious definition for decoherence, I'm not sure that's possible <laughs> from God. that I've done, unfortunately. Um, so, so, so what what the what Padre Javier did talk about Javier did talk about was um, was we he mentioned the Wigner's friend question. You know, this whole question of where we make the cut between the observer and the system in a quantum mechanics system. Can we put humans inside the system? <laughs> is the graduate student that we send out to check the experiment at 2 a.m. part of the system, and then the wave function from our perspective, you know, only collapses when they come to our office the next morning and tell us what yeah. actually happened? Um, yeah. We're not we're not sure. I mean, that that's an interesting philosophical question.
2: And then yeah.
0: another question he 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 pointed out that, that's an issue in quantum mechanics. So we we have all these classical physics terms. Things like position and momentum. Um, and we are we still describe things that way, even though you could make the argument that in quantum physics since there's you know, things are probabilistic, they aren't certain in that sense. Maybe we shouldn't be using those terms at all, and yet they're so sticky. Um, and so he, he brought up some interesting commentary from both the early workers in quantum physics and more contemporary people. To talk about, you know, the classical physics terms are just, in some sense, they're just part of how humans interact with the world. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so that was that was that what that talk was? It was very open-ended. It it wasn't it it didn't come to conclusions that I felt like I had I had learned <laughs> I had learned some definable bit of new information, which you know isn't always possible, unfortunately. Um,
1: but it sounds like it, it sounds like it just uh, helped to uh, raise new constructive questions by yeah by bringing together philosophy and
0: pointed, science pointed us in new directions for us to uh, to potentially uh, investigate those of us who, who really felt moved to uh, to check that direction and uh, and and see if see if we could come to an under a greater understanding of what the issues were and I would certainly. Yeah. Do one.
1: Right. Right. Oh, my goodness. Well, that's a lot of content and a lot of both answers and questions being raised. Well, it it, it was good to start with math that morning uh, uh, because uh, everything else had to be pulled together in a lot of transcendent thinking.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So it was... it was it was extremely, as as we as the saying goes, it was very stimulating. It was a stimulating right. discussion. Right? which, Of course, you know, <laughs> evokes the delightful image of us uh, a bunch of scientists sitting around with tea and crumpets, uh, discussing the state of affairs. So uh, yeah,
2: it, <laughs> at it a very high level.
0: <laughs> certainly got the gray matter uh, vibrating at a at a higher plane.
1: Right. <laughs> <So, laughs> Well, uh, let's close this episode by just uh, kind of asking for your overview of the overview of the conference and um, how you saw it fitting in to both the purpose uh, of, of of this podcast and and your own aspirations for uh, for uh, you know the the understandings that we hope will emerge from conferences like this.
0: Well, I mean, there was, and I think you know I, I heard from some people there. Uh, you know this same thing. There, there is the you know the basic human, you know, comfort that I'm not insane. I'm not the only person thinking these things. I don't have to. I don't have to do it alone against the social pressures of, well, nobody else thinks this. Everybody else is just a good, you know, politically correct atheist these days. Um, and that's you know, <laughs> that 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 was a great uh, comfort. And of course, it's part of the. Part of the reason why the society exists in the first place um there is there is you know this sort of sense that our culture our media bandy about that this is the way things really are, and you know if you don't think this then you're you're just tremendously foolish and you're a member of this you know backward mouth breathing asinine <laughs> you know backward you know less evolved human that needs to be left behind in the dust. <laughs> yeah. So it's a, it's a little comforting to, to, come out of your, uh, to come out of your hole and hobnob with other, uh, you know, less evolved members of the species and, and maybe
2: emulate
0: yeah. on whether we're really less evolved at all. Uh, right. So that, right. Was, so that was one conclusion. And, of course, the whole point is to actually put content out there, that it's not simply us making ourselves feel better. There are reasons why we think these things. And they are reasons that, you know, demand some sort of answer and the opening of actual discussion. And then, and then to also, you know, and especially to go back to to Kellner and the fact that he was there and the great, you know, that, that great aspect of it, that we care about getting to the right answer. We are not in this simply because we want to, you know, in in the Marxist, you know, sense, just run ourselves up with the opiate of religion. No, it's yeah. not really what's going on. Um, right. It's yeah. So so we're out there to actually discuss. You know, the whole point, if we believe this, is that the God that we believe in, another one of His names, is simply truth. Yeah. And if yeah. we're actually following, if, if we're pursuing the truth, and that involves the very scientific enterprise of letting things go when it looks like the experimental evidence. Or logical inconsistency is against us, you can just let it go. And that's actually a very Christian virtue. We call it humility.
2: <laughs> wow! Yes. That's so that—that right. was
0: the beauty, that, that was yeah. the beauty of it—is—is is that it, it was—it was an opportunity to see that you know those intertwined. And you know, I'm a person who believes they are very intertwined, and I know people you know even in the society of Catholic scientists, you know, for example. His name, his, I forget his first name. His last name is Looney. Uh, he's one of the people who, you know, helped found. You know, the discussion between him and Stephen Barr was, you know, one of the seminal events in leading to the uh, foundation of the society. Um, I see. But he, you know, he, he's, you know, he's comfortable saying, yeah, you know, my faith doesn't really affect what I do on a day-to-day basis. You know, I'm going in terms of my science. You know, it doesn't affect how I do my science. He was not saying it doesn't affect how he does, you know, any of the rest of his life, but. Right. And that's you know, and, and to me, I'm like you know, I wouldn't even say that. Uh, I w- I would not even say that. I think it actually does affect how I do my science, and not in a sense that I believe it's it, you know that it would be incommensurable with how people who lack my belief in a higher power being itself a cause outside the physical universe or causes outside the physical universe it it isn't and shouldn't be incommensurable with that. But yeah, I it's different. I, I, I think there are, there are ways in which it's going to be different. Right. We at at have Attitude toward it, and that and that's, I think that's important enough to to pay attention to. So.
1: Oh, amen. Yeah. No, that's really important to uh, overcome those just uh, those those uh, labels and uh, dismissive uh, divisions. That prevent the conversation from continuing and bearing greater fruit. That sounds like a that sounds like a conference that was uh, uh, a bit contrarian and uh, and also very constructive.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. I would I would have loved uh, to have uh, G.K. Chesterton sitting there in the back uh, taking notes and to see what his uh, his reporting on the event would have been. That would have been uh, the well,
1: back. I would, yeah. <laughs> That would be very interesting to see how uh, how he played the role of scientific uh, journalist uh, at some point. Uh, his mind was very sophisticated and very holistic, uh, but um, all of these thoughts are truly uh, third millennium, which uh, which is wonderful, and I'm sure that the G.K. would have uh, appreciated moving beyond things that hold us back. Uh, and yeah. uh, so, well, uh, let's let's make that. Uh, um, rejection of things that hold us back and uh, the embrace of things that move us forward uh, the ongoing uh, theme of our podcast shall we shall we end this episode on on that note I really think that uh, I hope we did a, a real service to our listeners by by summing up the uh, the speakers and the the aura of the uh, of the whole discussion uh, for your very good observations.
0: Well, whether my observations are very good, I hope they at least got people interested. And uh, I hope they uh, look up, you know, the Society of Catholic Scientists and and find out more about what they're doing, because uh, it's pretty interesting stuff.
1: Yes, I'd recommend that, too, based on everything I've heard about the, the Center. I think that's, uh, that's where the action is. Uh, and um, let's continue our discussions about uh, everything that that represents. Uh, in upcoming episodes. Hope our listeners will join us.
0: I hope so, too. We appreciate your time.
1: Yes, exactly. And thank you for your time, Paul, as always.
0: And you too, Bill.